have to confess to you this morning that um, I was kind of laughing at myself. Yesterday, I, I went and I told the youth they'd be proud of me. I went and yelled my lungs out at the UK game for UK. Uh, so that was a pretty big feat for me. Uh, last night, I went as some of our students were in a state championship soccer game. And again, yelled my lungs out. And my, I was driving home thinking, I don't know if I'm going to be able to preach tomorrow. And uh, so that was interesting. So I, I kind of made up my mind to not sing a lot this morning just in case. And uh, man, hallelujah, what a Savior. It is, there's, I don't know how you could sit and not sing that song. <laughs> I mean, there's no way. I, I sang, I'll be honest with you, my vocal cords are hurting. <laughs> and, and Jeff's ears are probably hurting. Um, but man, hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior. I want to share with you this morning something that God's doing, and it's perhaps a bit of a confession and an apology too, uh, because I don't think that um, sometimes I'd, I, I'm, I'm a person, just like you are, uh, but at, at the same time, I slip into the trap of thinking, well, I'm a minister and a pastor, and so some things I should have together, but I don't. I don't. And I want to share with you something that God's doing in my life. He, he is reawakening me to the joy that is in my salvation. He's reawakening me to the joy that is in knowing him. I had fallen into the trap of just kind of a cerebral knowledge of joy, where if you looked at me and said, should we have joy in our salvation, or what should be our response to our salvation, I would say, well, joy. We should have joy in it. But it was, it was just cerebral. And it had slipped from my heart to my head very easily. And I confess that to you this morning. And I came across a quote from John Piper. I've been reading a book of his lately. I came across this quote. Listen, it says, God is not worshipped where he is not treasured and enjoyed. Praise is not an alternative to joy, but the expression of joy. How do you express your joy? How do I express my joy? You see, I think the problem is this, is that, that many Christians are living a life void of joy. Many Christians are living a life void of joy. Do you see the problem in that statement? That Christians are living a life void of joy? That Christians that would stand and say, hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a savior. That Christians live a life void of joy? That's a serious problem. And the problem isn't just for us, but it's a problem for those around us. Listen to the couple of quotes. Um, some of you are familiar with the safe schools are Kevin Jennings that's been appointed. Listen to him how he describes his view of God in high school. He says, what had God done for me other than make me feel shame and guilt? I don't need you anymore, I decided. The Baptist church had left me only a legacy of self-hatred, shame, and disappointment. And I wanted no more of it or its father. Oliver Wendell Holmes, the Supreme Court Justice from the early 20th century, said this. He said, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. Slightly humorous, but highly grieving. I might have become a minister if it weren't for certain clergymen looking like undertakers. This forces me to ask why. Why? Is that our legacy? Why is our legacy one that people will say, I might have gone into the ministry had it not been for the, the demeanor of people who, of all people, should have had a demeanor of joy? 
Why? Why is our legacy one that someone would walk away from worship from the Bible thinking nothing but shame and guilt? Why would someone leave the doors of Grace Baptist this morning full of shame and guilt? When we can sing hallelujah, what a savior and know the grace and the love of God Almighty. Why? Why? I think there's three reasons. Then we're gonna jump into scripture. There's three reasons for this. One is that I think we've removed emotion from God. I think we've tried to be pious and we've fallen into the trap of saying, you know what, I shouldn't be emotional. I'm going to step back and knee-jerk response to some of the religious movements of the 20th century that we become unemotional. That when we stand and sing, it is one of proper stance. Lack of emotion. But you, you read scripture and you see throughout the joyful singing, you see throughout the, the humbling of God's feel the response of God you see the response of people towards God is, is many faceted, all kinds of emotions go into it. Emotions of sorrow, of joy, of rejoicing, of excitement, anticipation, of praise. And you see all the emotions that go into God's people. But yet we've removed emotion from our relationship with God, some of us. The second reason for this, I think, is this, is that some of us have grown just flat out callous to the joy of our salvation. Some of you have sat in these seats, not, not these exact ones, but seats of a church longer than I've been alive. And you've heard the gospel longer than I've been alive. And you've, you've heard this so long that you've grown callous to the grace of God. That you could read Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And you can read that and just go, hmm, I've read that before. That, that we can see the scriptures, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ and go, yeah, I've read that one too. Nothing new there. Can you put a scripture up that's new? I'm not concerned with new stuff. I want to know the truth of God. That brings joy. That brings joy. But some of us have grown callous to the truth of our salvation. The third reason is this, is that I think we've, there's a lot of people that just don't realize what happens in salvation. There, there's a lot of us that, that simply do not realize it. Whether that's because you don't know salvation, you never come to Christ, you're not a believer, or whether it's because you've never really stopped and thought. You've never stopped and meditated on the truth of God's word. You've never stopped and gone, what did it take? What does it mean? Man of sorrows was his name. What? How do I even sing the first verse? Man of sorrows, we're talking about God Almighty, the one that created everything, that spoke creation into existence, the holy God, the sovereign ruler of everything. Man of sorrows, what's his name? How? How could that be? How could that be? This morning, we're going to look into a passage of Scripture that God has just absolutely blown me away with recently. I've looked at it, the, probably it's been over the last two or three months, just, I, I keep coming back to it. And, and God keeps on just smacking me upside the head again and again and again. And this week I was sitting there, you know, you have to have a title for the sermon or else we may not be able to worship, right? So, so I had to, I was sitting there going, what is the title of the sermon? I don't know. And I, and I couldn't think of a title. And the only thing I could figure out is absolutely amazing. It is absolutely amazing what God has done. Absolutely amazing. 
And we're going to look at a passage that should fill you with joy this morning if you have a pulse. If you do not have a pulse, it won't fill you with joy. If it doesn't fill you with joy and you do have a pulse, one of two things are wrong. You're either not a Christian or you have pushed joy out of your life. And you need to come back before the throne of God and praise Him and ask Him to fill Him, to fill you and renew you with the joy of your salvation. Romans 5, 1 through 11. Flip there in your, in your Bible before, as you do that. I'm going to give you a brief summary of what's going on here. In, in Romans 1, we find out that all men are without excuse. All men are without excuse for not knowing there's a God. He, he says that, that men have suppressed the truth, that we have exchanged the glory of God for the idols of men. Something man-made. We've exchanged the glory of God for man-made images and we are without excuse because God's glory is displayed in creation. And we move on to Romans 2 and we find out that in Romans 2, 5 that we are building up God's wrath. We're storing up God's wrath, Paul says. All those outside of Christ are storing up God's wrath for them and that God judges impartially. He doesn't think more of a Jew than a Gentile, he says. He doesn't think more of an American than he does an Afghanistanian. He thinks the same. He doesn't think more of you than me because of who I am or how many times I've gone to church or because I have a theology degree. He judges impartial. And outside of Christ, all men are storing up the wrath of God. And we move to Romans 3, and Paul says, no one is righteous. Not one. There's none righteous. And you're thinking, if you studied Romans up through this point, and you read, you're thinking, wow, this is not fun. <laughs> yeah, this isn't the, woohoo good news I was, I was expecting out of God's word, right? Where's the joy in that? I've been beat over the head with a baseball bat at this point. I know how bad I am. There's the shame and the guilt that Jennings referred to. So did he walk out of church one day? Did he walk out from a conversation with a Christian never reading the second half of Romans 3? Has he ever looked at Romans 3? Have we looked at Romans 3 and we heard Paul say, but... But the good news is that while all have fallen short of the glory of God, all have sinned, it's not up to you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and died on the cross for you and for me. Not because of what we did or who we are, but because of his grace. And you are justified by faith alone through God's grace. Have we seen the good news of Romans 3? That we hear the bad news and we hear the kind of the, the bad situation that we're in. And then we hit the good news. And then Paul makes an argument in Romans 4 to the Jew. He, he looks to the Jew and says, look, you know what? Even Abraham was justified by faith. Even Abraham. Now to a Jew, this is a radical thing for Paul to say. Because to the Jew, Abraham was the dude. He was the man. I mean, he was the one you looked up to. If anyone was righteous... It was Abraham. And so for Paul to go, hey, you know what? Abraham, the father of our faith, the one if anybody's righteous, is him. I mean, this guy is the one every Jew looked to. And he says, hey, even Abraham was justified by faith. Even Abraham. And he goes and he makes his case through Romans 4. And then you hit Romans 5. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. He's laid out his case and he goes, now check this out. Now check this out. Listen to Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace by which we stand. 
And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proving character. And proving character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We will never cover the depth of the truth of this passage this morning. <laughs> There's no way. But we're going to jump in feet first. We're going to jump in feet first. You see, when Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, he's summarizing Romans 1 through 4. He says, you know what? Those who stand condemned and guilty are now justified by faith. I've proven my case. Therefore, having been justified by faith, and he goes on in this passage that we just read. If you've been here on Sunday nights, you know we're going through Galatians as a church. We've been studying through the book of Galatians, and Pastor Haynes has been teaching on this doctrine of justification by faith and what it means. But I want to make sure that you understand this morning what justification is. What, what is this word? This is a, a big word, and some people will check out and go, oh, you're speaking Christianese right away. And I'm going to check out, is this a big theological word? It's not. It's a word that you and I have to understand. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you have to understand what justification is. Is this essential to where you spend eternity? Justification in the Greek is from the root dikaio. It means to make or render right or just, to hold as guiltless, to accept as righteous, to stand approved. It's the once and for all act of God when he acquits the sinner. It's the time when God looks upon you and says, you are innocent. It's not something that goes on. It's just a one-time declaration when Christ looks at you, when God looks at you and declares you innocent before him. Not because of who you are, not because of how good of a student you are or how nice you look or how many times you've gone to church, but he declares you innocent out of his grace through faith. And he justifies you. That is justification. It's a legal term. Listen, if we close shop right now, if I say, you know what, let's just scratch the rest of it. Let's pray. If that's the case, we have all the reason in the world to stand and shout in joy for our God. We have every reason in the world to stop right here and to get on our knees and pray joyfully with adoration and thanksgiving to the greatness of God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, declared innocent. Are you innocent? No. Am I innocent? No. But God could actually look upon me and declare me as innocent, as guiltless, in right standing before him 
No way. you got to be kidding me. Yeah. That is something to rejoice in. That is something to say, hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior. Praise God, a lot of you are smiling right now. This is a good thing. If you're not, I would be worried. We should be smiling right now. Romans 5.1, praise God. Praise God. And then Paul moves in to where I go, whoa. <laughs> this, your, your Bible may have the heading, results of justification. Results of justification. Okay, we understand the term. Now, wait a minute. You mean something comes out of it? Yeah, listen to what he says. The first result in verse 1 is that we have peace with God. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. It's, it's different. This is a distinction from Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God. You see, as a, as a believer, you're granted the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. That is true. But it's distinct and it's different from peace with God. You see, why do we need peace with God? Because we know that in Romans 2, 5, we are storing up wrath outside of Christ. We know that in Ephesians 2, we're described as children of wrath. We know that in, in Romans 5, 10, that we are described as enemies, that we are at enmity. We are enemies of God. Do you understand what that means? Has that clicked in your three pounds of brain? That outside of Christ, you are an enemy of God. If you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian, that you are an enemy of God Almighty. That's not a scare tactic, but it would scare me. It's the truth. But yet, through justification, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. That we no longer are under His wrath. That we've been taken from an object of wrath to one who stands in His grace. The Old Testament concept of peace dealt primarily with the end times. When God will fulfill all his covenantal promises. That we would stand at peace with God or at wrath. That we would receive his wrath or his grace in the end time. And when Paul says this, he says the grace that we stand, we stand before God. Whether your end of days is tomorrow when you breathe your last or whether it's at the return of Christ, I don't know. But the question is, will you stand receiving God's wrath or will you stand at peace with God, clothed in his righteousness, a recipient of his grace? That's the question. Which one will it be? Paul says, peace with God, that we stand in grace and hope of his glory, the hope of the glory of God. Do you hope in the glory of God or do you fear the glory of God? I mean, we're talking about the glory of God Almighty. A fearful thing if we're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The glory of God, the same glory that he tells Moses would consume him if he looks upon his face. But yet we have peace with God and we hope in this glory. Wow, that's amazing. Peace with God. Peace with God. What an amazing thing. The second thing he says is this, as he says we have hope. Verses 2 through 10, this is a major part of this passage. And we could spend days talking about it. But I want to focus us on one aspect of this morning, the foundation. What is the foundation of the hope that Paul says we have? 
What is the foundation? He says the foundation is this, is it's God's love poured out. God's love poured out. The hope that he describes there, the Greek word is a sure confidence. It's a sure confidence. It's not a hope for, a wishful thinking, but it's a sure confidence. How? How do we have this sure confidence? Because in 5, 6, listen to verse 6. He says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God has displayed his love for us. He's displayed it. And Paul uses an interesting thing that English translations have a hard time pulling out. But in the Greek, he repeats the word eti. And what he does that for is to emphasize our helplessness. Literally, you can read it. For while we were still helpless, still at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You could, you could repeat that yet or still. Yet, while we were helpless, still while we were helpless, Christ died. Before we made any movement to him, before we did anything good, before we were born, Christ died for us. Man. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Hallelujah. Praise God. And he contrasts that in verse 7. Look at the contrast in verse 7. He says, hey, you know what? Um, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. Those, perhaps a good man, someone would dare even to die. You, you hear stories of a, of a father or a, or a mother who maybe dies for their child in some situation. Or you hear the story, or some of you have experienced this, where a man dies for his comrade in battle. And that is a noble thing. And that is an honorable thing. That is a demonstration of love. But Paul says, man, God not only did that, but God went even further and he died for his enemies. But God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were transgressing against him, while we were standing in open rebellion against him, he died for us. He died for us. There's a story, there's a story told of a man named Peter Miller. He was a, a pastor during the Revolutionary War and he had a neighbor. This neighbor hated him. He violently opposed him because of his beliefs and his faith. Well, it came about, it was found out that his neighbor was guilty of treason and was sentenced to death. When Peter Miller found this out, Peter Miller went to approach George Washington and he stood before George Washington and he presented his case to him. Please don't let this man die. And George Washington looked at him and said, I, I don't see any reason that your friend should not die. And at that, Peter Miller exclaimed, listen to this, he says, my friend? He's not my friend. In fact, he's my worst living enemy. George Washington said, what? You walked 60 miles to save the life of your enemy? That, in my judgment, puts the matter in a different light. I'll grant your request. And so Peter Miller, man, he hightails it back. And he comes into town, and he gets there as they're leading his neighbor up to the gallows to hang him. And as his neighbor sees him, he yells this, Old Peter Miller has come to have his revenge by watching me hang. And much to his surprise, Peter Miller steps out of the crowd with a pardon in his hand. Now that's a nice story. But you know what? We all stand guilty of treason. And you know the difference is? Is Christ didn't go and beg and plead. Christ didn't come back with a piece of paper. Christ paid the price that you and I couldn't pay. He gave his life. He lived the perfect life and he died the sacrificial death. 
Wow. Wow. There's hope. I mean, demonstrate that amount of love. There's hope that we can hope in that love. That is sure confidence in that love. That is the sure confidence that we have in Christ. The third result of, reconcil- or of um, justification is that we're reconciled to God in verse 10 through 11. We are reconciled to God. This is a, really another topic for another day. We, we could spend all day in this one alone. But essentially, you're moved from an enemy of God to a child of God. Praise God. Praise God. The last thing is joy. The last result of justification is joy. You notice in the New American Standard, it says we exult in hope. We exult in our tribulations. We exult in God through, Lord, through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word exult, you know what it means? To leap for joy. To leap for joy. To rejoice and triumph. To be glad above measure, above and beyond measure. That we leap for joy. We exult in Christ. We leap for joy in what he has done. Do you leap for joy? I'll tell you this. When they scored a goal last night, the championship game, one nothing. I leapt for joy. Shame on me if I leap for joy more for a stupid soccer goal than for the glory of God and the work he did on the cross. Shame on me. Do we exalt in God? <laughs> he says we rejoice in the glory of God, that we stand in his grace not in his condemnation. We rejoice in the midst of trials. We know that they refine us and they produce hope that is sure and certain. We exult in those. Are they easy? No. Paul's not ignorant of that. Paul knows that trials are hard and he knows there's dark days. And scripture knows there's days where you're not walking around happy, happy, joy, joy. There's days where you don't want to get out of bed. There's days where you don't want to look at people you have to look at. Because the depth of your sorrow and the enormity of the trial in front of you. But in the midst of that, we have joy in Christ. A joy that has seen the darkest day in history on Calvary become the greatest victory in history. That's joy. We jump for joy for that we exult in that we rejoice in it we rejoice in the knowledge of our reconciliation he says rejoice rejoice do we rejoice church listen do do we stand in joy we're going we're going to stand in a moment and sing we're going to close our service differently this morning by by responding in celebration and as we do that, may we not stand long-faced and somber. May we stand and joyfully sing, forgive us, God, for entering your course with frowns. God, forgive us. May we exalt, even in trials, whatever you're going through today, it is real and it is hard, but rejoice in the knowledge of God's grace and power. Rejoice in that. I'm going to read you one quote from John Stott. He says this. He says, we should be the most positive people in the world. We cannot mooch around the place like a, dr- 
with a dropping hangdog expression. We cannot drag our way through life moaning and groaning. We cannot always be looking on the dark side of everything as negative prophets of doom. No. We exalt in God. Christian worship becomes a joyful celebration of God. So come, let us exalt in God together. Let us rejoice in God together. One last thing, if you're an unbeliever, there's two words that are repeated four times in this passage that you need to understand. And those two words are through Christ. Through Christ. Look at 5.1. We're justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 5.2. Through Christ. In 5.9, we're saved from God's wrath through Christ. In 10 and 11, we're reconciled through Christ. Christ if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord if you are not a follower of Christ you have no reason to exult in joy you have no peace with God and you are not reconciled but (laughs) praise God if your life is in the hands of Christ. You have all the reason in the world to stand with us and to sing praises to his name with smiles on your face, regardless of what tomorrow holds. Let's pray. Father God, we bow in your presence and God, we rejoice in our salvation. God, you have demonstrated your love. You have shown the depth of your love in dying for us while we were yet sinners. God, what a mighty, mighty thing that is. And God, it brings joy to our hearts and joy to our minds, and we praise you, God. We praise you. God, I pray that if there is someone in here today, God, that does not know you, God, open their eyes. God, give them the faith, the boldness to step forward to to talk to myself or maybe another staff member or a parent or a friend that they know as a believer and ask them, how how do I become a Christian? How do I put my faith in Christ? It's so easy. God, I pray for those of us this morning who have fallen into the trap of becoming callous to our salvation, the joy that is in it, who perhaps have separated joy from our salvation. God, renew our joy now. God, we stand and we sing and we praise your name and joy now. It's in Christ's name we pray.